Welcome back to Digital Health Unplugged, the podcast in which we take a look at what is making headlines in the world of NHS IT. I'm your host, Andrea Downey, and I'm senior reporter here at Digital Health. Hello and welcome back to Digital Health Unplugged. And what a week it is this week. We are seeing the easing of further COVID restrictions across England. So we're now allowed to go inside with our friends and family, which is great because summer appears to have gone missing this year. There is also a further easing of restrictions for care homes, which is lovely because they've had a really tough time during the pandemic. Theatres and cinemas are also coming back. It's all starting to feel a lot more positive and normal. But that got us thinking. Now that things seem to be going a little bit back to normal, and touch wood, obviously know that there are still a lot of risks and we're not quite out of the woods yet, but it does feel a bit like that. So then how do we maintain the speed and uptake of digital services that we have seen during the pandemic? And is it even reasonable to expect that amount of digital transformation in the future? Can that actually be maintained? We have a great panel joining us today to talk to me about just that. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Rishi Dasgupta, Chief Executive of the Health Innovation Network South London, Ruth Bradbury, Senior Navigator at DigitalHealth.London, Luke Redman, Regional Director of Digital Transformation for NHS England, and Asha Cowie, Program Manager for NHS South, Central and West. Thank you so much for joining us today, guys. I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion. Um, But first of all, how are you all doing? I can only imagine that the last year has been hectic, to say the least. Uh, it, it, it has been pretty hectic, but I think it's um, very worthwhile. I think we've seen some profound changes over the last year, and I think those changes are largely for the better. So, so I, you know, it, it's a remarkable time that we're living in, and I think um, there's no better opportunity for us than now. And in the whole of my career, I still think that's the case. Yeah, I bet you're tired though. Well, I am tired, but you know, the sunshine perks me up. It uh, well, when am I getting it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it's sunny here. Oh, it's not sunny at my place. It is cloudy. I'm very jealous. <laughs> How's everyone else doing? Yeah, I was going to say, um, I think from our perspective at DigitalHealth.London, it's been a, a really busy um, sort of last year as well. We we have gone from running a cohort of, of um, digital health companies face-to-face to then going completely virtual, um, delivering our programme, working with the NHS, um, you know, through through video calls, um, completely virtual, which has been a real change for us, delivering our events online. So it's uh, been a massive change, but one that's gone really, really well and uh, delivered some really successful outcomes for the companies that we support. I, I would add in, I think uh, it's been a inc- quite challenging on a personal level. But professionally, it's been incredibly satisfying because we've seen so much change over the last year. Um, many things that we'll want to keep going beyond COVID um, and, and some things that we can learn from going forwards. I, I think one of the big reflections for me has been um, I've largely been working in that that work work workforce space, and I think the, the recognition of you know actually the, the workforce in, in the digital space has, has just catapulted over this period, and, and that's been really interesting to watch. Um, I think on a more personal note, um, like many of us, very very up and down. Um, dealing with everything from homeschooling to quarantines and trying to fit work in between. So, yeah, it's been an incredible, um, well, 14 months now. So I think the last 14 months has really 
um, highlighted the need for digital services. Uh, there was just so many things that had to go online because we all had to be at home, uh, which really accelerated you know, patients and clinicians use of these services. So I wanted to ask first off what your experience of that was. Were there any specific areas for you that saw the most growth and how did, uh, you know, how did you find everything worked in your organisations? Um, Rishi, should we start with you? Sure. So I think um, there are three big areas I think we've seen really big changes over the last year. So the first is in um, the use of communications technology. We talk a lot about remote consultations, but also the staff-to-staff interactions are often happening remotely and also asynchronously. So whereas that might have been in you're relying for people on the same time to look at something, actually we've got much better at working around our regular working hours. The second bit, I think, is around remote monitoring to, to target interventions when, at times when people are ill. A lot of what we've done in outpatients traditionally has been focused on sort of periodic reassessment of, of, of health. And actually now we're, we're in a position where we can actually target things that when people are ill much better than we used to. And then I think the third is around workforce support and training, and particularly around cross-skilling staff to take on additional roles and how we support less experienced colleagues remotely. So I think lots of examples of that over the year, but the the couple that I would pick out are at the HIN, we've been working for remote, to deliver remote consultations in care homes and and remote monitoring in care homes. And together with partners, we've we've helped roll out six different remote monitoring platforms to uh, the care homes across London which covers 21,000 older people and helps them remain well in their own homes without having to go to hospital for assessment if they become less well. And then I think the second thing I'd flag up is the HIN's role as part of the National AHSN network in providing COVID oximetry at home, which means that eligible patients at risk of COVID-19 have had access to pulse oximeters at home and and actually, really importantly, the services on the back end, so that if, they're unsh- if the results are, uh, indicate they need help, they can access that remotely. And, and I think that's helped keep uh, about 900 people out of hospital at a single day back in January, when we looked at it in January, at the peak of the, uh, the last wave. And I think that has had a real contribution to, to adding capacity to our, our, our London health system. So I think reflecting on um, one of the pieces of work I was leading on um, just before the pandemic, so sort of January 2020 actually, was um, was the online consultations in primary care. And it's really funny in hindsight because, you know, we were, we have these national, national targets and we were trying to support practices to meet those. And um, I actually came off that program as the pandemic hit just due to something else. And, you know, all those targets have just absolutely been blown out of the water um, with, you know, the the uptake of, of the various tools and, and absolutely just, um, you know, getting through some of those challenges that had been, you know, really blocking some of this for years from the infrastructure to the, I suppose, the, the faith to try some of these things. Um, so I think that was really interesting to see. And, and you know, it, it, it was like it just almost changed overnight. It happened so quickly and it was an absolute testament to everyone involved in that. I think one of the things I've kind of picked up on around the implementation of 
video consultations has been yes it's been it's been a fantastic opportunity and you know has totally transformed the way we've been able to work but there have been challenges for staff as well so from um, clinicians from my own clinical background um, speech and language therapy it's been often you know how do we find the right platform to use um, how do we make sure that that meets the needs of the setting that it's being used in for different for schools or community settings how do we meet the challenges around group setting um, type consultations and how do we ensure that the governance is in place around switching you know typically face-to-face hands-on interactions how do we how do we ensure that the governance is in place with switching them to virtual so there have been quite a lot of challenges there for clinicians to to manage and i think also it's highlighted that for example implementing video consultations across an outpatient pathway it's not enough there are still some gaps for example how do we then ensure patients get their medicines dispensed um, in a still in a, a remote or virtual way you know so they don't have to then come into a clinic se- a setting to receive those medications so i think it's highlighted gaps yet so we're kind of part way on that journey but there's still some work to do so look for me the pandemic has operated in phases and um you know, as, as, as the regional lead for, for digital transformation at the NHS in London, the first couple of questions I was asked was, how do we support extending capacity for in- intensive care? Because that was the immediate clinical need. And, you know, how do we support the people going into the Excel to make it into a nightingale? The second question was then, how do we convert um, hospital outpatient and GP face-to-face visits? Um, and actually... None of that was new technology. That was all existing stuff that was just implemented at scale. And what we saw was that um, because we were in a level four emergency, the instruction from the top was very clear. And the agency, you know, the the degree to which people complied and and uh, put that into place locally was, was very substantial. So it, it was a really interesting observation when you look back at it at how very clear instructions, very well understood with very good local sort of response can deliver some things very quickly. I'd say then the second phase for me of delivery um, was about data. And there was a real early sort of, once we got into April and May, it was, have we got the right data which is describing what's happening, whether that's around um, infection rates, geography, um, about um, ethnicity, around access, and how do we support systems to deliver that? And whilst I think we will continue with all the, um, if you like, the, the digital systems discussion and how we link them up and how we join up care and data, I think the the pervasive issue for me around this is how do we get our data collected at the point of care to a much better quality going forward so we can respond to these sorts of events and indeed improve the way we deliver care you know, for and with our public. Uh, that for me seems the big gap that has been exposed by this process. So you all raised actually um, a few points that I was going to talk about throughout the podcast, which I think are really interesting. Um, Asha, the first one I wanted to talk about was a point you raised actually was about um, just how quickly things were able to get moving. Um, Because obviously the NHS, um, for a good reason, obviously people's lives are in your hands, um, but it does mean you can be a bit slow with, you know, implementing new services. so how do you think that it was able to just make such rapid and huge changes when COVID actually hit? 
think there's probably two things I, I think there's there's the will of our staff there's you know most of the people that work in this area are you know they're here because they love it and they want to do the right thing they want to do the best thing and you know it it was the will of the staff to make a lot of this happen. Um, I think especially at the start of the pandemic, though, you know, there were a lot of long hours. You know, I, I think most of us, especially in those first few weeks, months, um, I remember doing 17-hour days some days and, and wondering actually how I was functioning. And, um, you know, it, it's not sustainable, but I think it was incredible how everyone just did what needed to be done. Um, and I think the second thing is, I think because it was forced on us, because we had to, we just had to plough on through some of those, you know, I don't want to say governance is a bad thing, but some of the things that might have previously hindered us, and, and you know, we, we just had to make decisions and we had to go for things and test things in a way that we just hadn't done before, um, which was really exciting. And I do hope, you know, we continue that to some extent. I would add to, to what Asha said, the... So I think that we we allowed uh, the local clinicians to actually make changes to services. And that's meant that we got a lot of things done really quickly, but it's in some cases been quite patchy and there's quite a lot to learn and put together. I think the second bit is it, we actually saw a lot of the changes happening were accelerations of programs that were already in progress and ready to adopt, but might've taken a lot longer and a lot more. What we saw was a lot of cycles of refinement happening really quickly, but I think I think the biggest thing about it was that we saw people actually reassess the relative risk of change versus the status quo. So whereas normally we would be quite reluctant and cautious in making changes, what we realised was that keeping going the way that we had been working wasn't safe in itself. And, and so we reassessed a lot of those things. And when we talk about governance being changed, I think that's what really changed. Just to, just to follow up on that point that you've raised there, Rishi, I think, you know, we also saw some of the relaxation around compliance standards um, in relation to digital. So things like um, uh, the DSPT for, for NHS mail sign up for care homes, for example, which made some of those processes much more easier to, to get through. Um, so, you know, in that situation, enabling care homes to sign up to NHS mail, use that and to be able to communicate much more easily with, with their health colleagues. Um, and then I think from the perspective of the work that I'm involved in, we saw um, a lot of the digital health companies really pivoting their value proposition, really taking their, their technology and working out how could they fit into this new system, into this, um, the new problem. Um, and that's, and that's been, you know, really beneficial on all sides. The NHS uh, was able to then access solutions that perhaps hadn't really been thought about before. Um, Digital health companies are able to to really find a, find a place and find a niche, um, but also and, you know following on from that, they were able to really easily and quickly change their training and onboarding processes so that actually they didn't have to come in and be on site; they could do all of that virtually. So there was a huge amount of of will to change from, as Ash was saying, from the NHS workforce, but also from from the, the industry side too. Thanks very much, Ruth. So I think my point is that. We changed the way we make decisions very, very, very rapidly. And we went to a system of uh, permission and permissiveness rather than a system of control and governance. And people got together regularly on very short notice to make decisions. And the, the top of the shop um, actually said, 
if if you believe this is something you need to do to sort out the difficulties you've got, get on with it and we will back you. And, you know, subsequently quite a lot of money was made available to back up those promises as we went later through the year. And so, so what, you know, what we normally see is quite laborious governance and meetings and, and steps to do these things. Um, and I suppose um, cutting through that has meant actually a lot of people felt much more satisfied that we were able to make an impact uh, much more quickly. And the slight danger is that as we go back into a, a world where we're reconstructing the governance around integrated care systems, for example, we'll fall back into some old processes. So the, the test for me is how do you re- retain the agility that we got um, um, going forward? Because I think that, that we don't want to lose. I think that was remarkable. Yeah, and I was actually going to touch on that a little bit later, um, but I, I think we can bring it up now. Um, do you think that when the pandemic is, I, I mean, I say over, um, <laughs> I'd like to say over soon, um, but when we do sort of start going back to normal, is there a risk that there is going to be a bit of a backslide in the way we've been using digital, or do you think it's going to stay at the level that it's at? I, I think the, the solutions and approaches will stick. Um the extent to which they're used will vary. Um, and, and that will, you know, if, if we looked at primary care, we've already seen quite a lot of publicity about people saying that the, you know, uh, they're coming in on a Monday and they've got, you know, a hundred or several hundred, um, it, you know, um, emailed requests for help. And then therefore it takes them too long to catch up with this. So, so what we're seeing is a whole load of demand in the system that we weren't exposing through the previous mechanisms. And so it's dealing with that issue rather than the technology that becomes the issue. It's the human response and the human systems around this that become the issue rather than the technology. Now, undoubtedly, as we refine the technology, we'll get better at um, um, and more precision at selecting the right cases and so on and so forth. Uh, but I think it would be unreasonable to say it's the technology causing the problem. I think it's the, the way we organize ourselves in the in and historically that is now butting up against this new way of working and public expectation. And it's that that we've got to resolve really going forward. I think I just wanted to touch and, and Luke just mentioned, you know, the, the public response to this and, and actually going back to the previous question, um, you know, we, we maintain some of that change as well because of, you know, the, the patients and public put, put the trust actually into us um, to make those changes and, you know, in, in a way do some of what had to be done um you know as, as, I suppose as part of the pandemic I think there's something in this as well as, as as well as you know all the learning we've just discussed around how do we evolve governance going forwards is how we continue to to listen to patients and the public as we move forwards as you know th- there is that risk that we we push it too far and we and we put them off or um and there's you know there's a separate discussion and argument about how do we you know to sort out the digital divide and those that get left behind so I, th- I think there's also something here about um you know how we how we bring how we bring that into it and um you know it goes back to the human processes again so make sure we're organized behind the scenes so we don't put people off uh, i think luke uh, luke and ashley covered the main points i think the key bit is that we've seen a lot of um a lot of variation in the way that people have use technology locally and some of that has been within the normal ways of working and normal working hours and 
some of it's been outside of that. And as we return to normal, I think people are trying to work out what are the operation, clinical and operating processes that go around these new ways of using technology. And, and I would encourage us to try and use this opportunity to do, do that work at a organization and cross-organization regional level so that we get, you know, we, we set new norms in that way of working rather than uh, in our new ways of working rather than trying to just revert back to sort of regular working hours and the, the old ways of doing things. I think the AHSNs particularly have a, a, a role to play in that, as do our London-wide programmes and, um, and and regional programmes around the country. I think I think as well, just thinking about there's a huge amount there that we can do in sharing good practice and what's been really successful, um, because I think there's so much to learn between organisations, um, you know, and. And initiatives like NHSX playbooks are a really good example of how that could be done. Um, and I think, yeah, we, we really need to share that good practice. And, and as you say, HSN's in a, a good position to, to do that too. Mm. So the million dollar question now, I guess, is, um, and, you know, well done if you've got the answer to all of this. Um, but how do we maintain that momentum? And is it even reasonable to expect us to be able to maintain the momentum that we've seen during the pandemic? I, I, I think some things will be maintained and some things will not be maintained. And you might say that's a bit of an easy answer, but you know what we're trying to what we're trying to sort out now is what is the new normal, um, because we're we're in this sort of transitional phase from the you know the acute year of pandemic and the pressures we've now got around um, uh, you know elective recovery and and uh, new ways of working. Um, and we haven't, you know, we've got some some ideas are being put into place around that, but they haven't yet been sorted. And and I still, so 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 I I think we will be on a, if you like, a, a much more significant trajectory than we were previously. And I think we'll see a response from national bodies which take us down that route, as well as demand locally from our uh, clinical and organisational colleagues and from the public. Um, but quite what it is, I think, is is fairly hard to be accurate in, in, in predicting going forward. Um, and, and the one thing I just want to come back to is that our workforce really need, and I don't, don't just mean our clinical workforce, I mean everyone, you know, all the back office functions, all the functions that don't have direct care, everyone has put in long hours and long weeks and not had much holiday. They all do need a reasonable period of sort of recovery and assimilation to be able then to, you know, restore to that new normal. And, and I think that's that's probably um, something that we shouldn't underestimate in, in, in getting there, really. Thinking about that momentum, it's, we, we really need to, to think about what, what barriers are going to be put back in place from, from our old ways of working, which I think is kind of Luke where you were sort of coming from as well. So, you know, where we've got challenges around integration with our um, digital health technologies you know if we can if we put some of those barriers back in or if we kind of keep those barriers as they are that is going to sort of slow slow the process up that is that is really going to sort of hinder things moving forward as they could do so I think it's it's really about having a having a better strategic plan about how we we keep digital implementation moving forward 
I, I would add to that. I think it's interesting you've chosen the word momentum, actually, because there's both speed and direction on this. And we talked a bit about things we can do to keep the speed going. But I think that what we've seen over the last year is that we've made changes versus a model where you can't see people face to face. And I was at the beginning working in a, a respiratory hospital. And so we made changes there, which made things safer than not being able to see someone face to face. But actually, when we're able to see people face to face, that may be a better way of doing things than some of the digital things that we've put in place at the moment. And I think trying to get to that medium ground, that way where we see, you know, where we're balancing um, some risk against convenience and for the patients and patient experience is something that will take a little while to get to. So I don't think that it will be a you know, single direction of travel towards more and more digital in every situation. But I think we will get to a place where we have a much better set of tools to allow us to provide a really good patient experience. And those organizations and areas where we've got teams that are skilled in working on how to design those new patient pathways and, and include technology within it will, will do really well in this. I think I just agree with pretty much everything that I said. Um, I think, you know, I, I don't think we're going to see another step change on that scale again because it was, it was, you know, it was incredible. And, you know, are we going to see a bit of a, a plateau as as we, you know, work out what are the right models? Um, I, I think there's something in here about, you know, if you do digital transformation badly, you know, you, you take a a process that doesn't work and you stick digital in it and you expect it to work so there might almost be a bit of unpicking around so actually you know what were the things that that did work and what were the things where you know we still have to change those processes and get to those gaps and and it feels like that's you know that's some of that next step building on that if i can add a little bit to that i think one area we have a difference at the moment is that we now have a lot of when we're, we're designing new pathways, we now have a lot of patients who've tried a new way of working and, and new ways of doing things. And the opportunity to involve them in the, in the design of new, new patient pathways is really exciting from my point of view, rather than talking about a theoretical product that they might try if we get it all through, we're now talking about their experiences during the pandemic. There's an analogy here with buildings and estates, and we know that you know, very often the, the service runs a backlog and it's estates maintenance. And, uh, you know, every now and then a hospital will get rebuilt and, you know, it'll be fine for a while. And then, you know, 30 years later, the, the estates backlog will start to generate again. And what, what I think we're starting to expose is that there's a, there's a, a, a technical debt or a technical backlog as well. And so things like, you know, are the networks sufficient to cope? Are the end user devices sufficient uh, and kept up to date and replaced? Um, is the way we develop platforms and technology properly supported? Those sort of basic things will become much more significant. And if they're not properly supported and funded, then all the ambition beyond that becomes sort of, um, uh, you know, much less effective. And so I think there's a really big pressure coming into the system about how the system funds that going forward um, to meet those expectations and where that sort of fiscal pressure can be met from. Because even though 
you know, if you look back at Simon Stevens' tenure, you know, the significantly the budget of the NHS has gone up very, very significantly, hasn't it? But but yet, you know, we still feel we have that sort of technology debt. So so I think there's a big ask going forward to do the basics really very, very well uh, in order for us to start to build the ambition. And we'll get into this really difficult question of, well, are we going to fund clinical care and more operations or are we going to fund our infrastructure? And can we demonstrate the benefit in investing in our infrastructure against the benefit of clinical care? Can it make it more efficient? And how do we deliver that? And I'm not sure we're that good at doing that. Um, you know, I, I think that's an area that needs some examination. Otherwise, local systems are going to have to make these difficult choices. We'll, we'll find it, we'll, we'll find they will really struggle, I think. I think that's a really interesting point, Luke. Um, and if I can think back to a conversation I had with one of my board members a while ago, um, they challenged me to say, what percentage of our revenue are we currently spending on our IT infrastructure and, and technology infrastructure? And I found it quite hard to benchmark that against other pieces. But when they brought their industry experience, it was clearly a lot lower than in other industries outside healthcare or healthcare in the States. Yeah, just I mean, obviously the the sort of digital and the IT infrastructure is so important, but also we mustn't forget around the the, the workforce needs and, and around training and education. Um, and I think if we if we neglect that, then we're in at risk of developing and, and implementing technologies that our our staff are, and potentially our, you know our patient users can't access well enough. Um, so I think it's really important to make sure that, that that element comes along the journey too. Yeah, I'm really glad you raised that, Ruth, actually, because um, I think there's a really important aspect of this that we've touched on a little bit. Um, and that is, you know, the staff that are going to be using the systems and also staff well-being. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that the reason we were able to achieve such big strides in digital services um, and also everything else in the last 14 months is because staff are working extremely hard and they're tired and burnout has been a really big problem. Um, so I wanted to kind of address whether or not we can expect this level of digital transformation um, and this you know, continued momentum without putting staff wellbeing at risk. Um, and if not, how do we consider that in the next or in the in the future when we're sort of moving on? Um, I think I'll make sort of two points here. Um, you know, there, there's something we've already covered a bit about that, you know, our workforce are generally quite tired at the moment. So, it, you know, it's that general, how do we maintain that momentum um, and, and you know, keep going a little bit longer? Um, there's also something in this for me um, around, you know, where flexible working and workforce, you know, meets um, estates, meets technology and, you know, we've we, we found out over the last year that actually a lot of things can be done remotely, can be done at home. Um, but actually, you know, some of the some of the impacts of that is, you know, staff working really, really long hours, um, you know, the, the lack of social side, those sorts of things. So I think it's more of a word of caution, I think, really, when we're talking about working flexibly and working in a different way is making sure it's not just a binary, you know, whether you're at home, whether you're in the office argument, but we're thinking about, you know, hours and all sorts of different things. I think it's very important to really address the fact that 
staff are working crazy hours. Like it's it's been an awful 14 months, I can imagine. Um, so I think it's really important that we look after the people that are making these decisions and doing the work for us. Um, which also leads me on to the skills as well, because obviously digital skills are, um, there's been a lot of reports and reviews that suggest that, you know, staff need to be upskilled to use digital more frequently. Um, do you think that the NHS workforce is at a stage where it's ready to be a little bit more digitally savvy or is there still some work to do there? I think that's a really good question. I, I think what we've seen over the last year is people have had to try things that are outside their comfort zone and often without having had training in advance for it. So what I've seen a lot of is at elbow training by colleagues. And I think that model is probably with us to stay with experts, super users and departments doing thing, doing training rather than rather than you know a central training team or an IT team training on IT. I think overall, though, there is a need to support staff whose um, digital skills aren't as aren't as stronger as others it, it, in you know learning to use these technologies and in experimenting with these technologies to to see how they uh, integrate them into their own clinical and operational practices. It feels like there's a trade-off, but I don't think there there is a trade-off. But it feels like we're getting ourselves to a position where um technology um is like being supported to be delivered but transformation and the support for transforming pathways and staff is a secondary sort of uh, priority and i i i think it needs to be the other way around i think the transformation and staff support is the most significant thing and then you know we, we will work out the sort of technology that's needed to do that now uh, that, it, you have to be a bit careful about that, but I, I do think we need to just sort of set those two priorities together and be clear that it's the transformation bit of this that's the critical part. Whichever part of the system we're working with, and w- whichever of our partners, whether that's you know the public or or indeed professionals or or um, technology companies themselves, I think the transformation element has has to be the priority in that. Yeah, I think. Um... You know, there's definitely something here about supporting staff with learning and development in this area. Um, you know, one of the main reasons I got involved in digital health and the CIO advisory panel was, um, you know, I'm someone at a different stage in my career. And, you know, I found navigating the career pathway and the opportunities and the progression really difficult. And I know I'm far from alone in that. So I think, you know, the the pandemic has brought to light a lot of this and actually how we need to value and support those roles. So I'm op- quite optimistic. Um, I have spent the last year or so actually working with HEE and the Digital Readiness Programme and, and their focus is on, you know, that, that uplift of skills for the health and care workforce. And I really hope out of this, we you know, we take a bit more seriously. How do we support individuals, you know, on a career pathway with training that matches CPD, that's matched to careers? And, you know, that'll be both for people in a, you know, formal digital informatics, call it what you want role, but also that wider workforce. So um, I'm quite optimistic because I think a lot of this has been brewing and the pandemic has pushed us to take some of this a bit more seriously and develop some of that standardisation. I think there's a, a, a lot to be done to help staff who are already working in the NHS um, with with improving their digital skills. I would say this is a really good time for people who are looking to enter healthcare IT as a profession and a, a, a career path 
to actually do it because as we've highlighted elsewhere in this conversation you know the the opportunities in healthcare IT are going to increase over time and we do run a, a at him, we run a graduates into health program and uh, a DDAP program to, to attract in, you know, talented young people who are interested in careers in healthcare, uh, healthcare IT into this space. So I'll, I'll put that plug in there now. <laughs> You're allowed to put that plug in there. Um, but unfortunately, we are, we have very quickly run out of time. This happens on every podcast. Um, but just before I do wrap it up, I wanted to ask you all one very quick question. If you could pick one thing that has changed in healthcare IT uh, over the last 14 months, what would it be? Um, I think it's the shift to data. Yeah, um, and, and, and that will drive our future. I think it's encouraging local clinicians to try new technologies and to think how they can use them and giving them the freedom to do that. Oh, there's so many to choose from, but I, I think I'd have to settle with, um, you know, I hope what we see out of this is people seeing a meaningful career in this area and, um, you know, seeing something that they could do and be proud of. Mm, I hope so too. Well, uh, Rishi, Ruth, Luke and Asha, it's been so great having you on Digital Health Unplugged. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And of course, thank you to all of our wonderful listeners who have tuned in. Please don't forget that Digital Health Unplugged is published fortnightly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and the usual podcast platforms. So you can give us a follow on any of those to keep up to date with what we're doing. And if you've got a podcast suggestion, we are really keen to hear from you. You can get in touch on podcast at digitalhealth.net. That's it for this episode. We'll catch you in two weeks time. You've been listening to Digital Health Unplugged. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more episodes or to keep up to date with what Digital Health Unplugged is doing, you can give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast channel. If you want to know more about Digital Health, our news and events, you can head on over to digitalhealth.net.